Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by legal scholar and a mentor of mine, Angela Swan. She's a giant in the field of contracts law here in Canada, having been a professor, a practitioner, and a prolific author cited by the Supreme Court. In 2016, the Ontario Bar Association recognized her with an award of distinguished service, and she's most recently been recognized by the Governor General, appointed as an officer of the Order of Canada. This is not a conversation about contract law, though, as interesting as that would be. Instead, it's a more personal conversation about how Angela Swan, a proud trans woman, transitioned to become Angela Swan, and her message that we should expect acceptance. I came to know Angela for my part when I started out as a summer student at the firm Airden Burles here in Toronto. She always took her mentorship role very seriously, and we've stayed in touch since, in part because she's also a constituent here in Beaches East York. Angela, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so. I joined Airden Burles as a first-year summer student, and I knew of you before then because, of course, your name... Your former name was on my contracts textbook. And when I joined Ayrton Burles, there was a, an email that had come around that sort of an, a gentle sort of reminder to all staff and students and, and lawyers that John was becoming Angela. And I have to say at the time, I just thought it, it took a lot of courage because I, I'd never seen anyone in that environment certainly going through that, that change and, and that transition. And how did you arrive at that point in your life? deciding to go from John to Angela? Well, I, I was 60. Uh, my wife had died a few years before. <clears throat> I'd wanted all my life, I remember vividly, at the age of six, lying in bed and imagining there was somewhere there's a magic bath into which I could be placed, and I'd emerge from the bath as, as a girl as opposed to a boy. So I wanted you know, absolute certainty for a very long time. When my wife died, I said, kind of, what am I waiting for? You know, she'd have a great trouble with it, I think. Any woman would. I, but um, so I said, well, let's go for it. As simple as that. Simple as that, yes. I, well, I, what I did, I, did, I you know, I, I got four children. So I went to each of them to tell them, this is my plan before I did it. I didn't ask for permission. I simply said, just so you know, don't be surprised by it. And I did the same with my sisters and my brother. My brother would be upset. He's okay. If I come around now, but the rest of my fans are actually fantastic in accepting it. But, so I decided then I would do it and have made the decision. I, I'm not sure you at the. I sent around an email to the whole firm saying, oh, "By the way, my name is now Angela, not John." And within half an hour, I would got about 35 responses saying, "Great, great, you know, well done." Some saying, "What took you so long? We saw it coming for years." <laughs> so, uh, because you know it's really hard i mean you know you really are living in this i call them living with my demons you know for a long time i told nobody about them until i was in my 40s um because of growing up in ireland during the war immediate post-war and so on going to boys boys boarding schools wasn't a place conducive to kind of disclosure of those kinds of things well even at the age of 60 when you come out as it were, but you've known since the age of six. Yeah. And, and and in that 54-year period of time, even at the age of 60 at that time, in 2008 or so, there weren't many people that were having this conversation on Bay Street, certainly, but but I think in many places. There weren't very many indeed. I mean, I remember in 1952, uh, our school, my school subscribed to Life magazine. There was a story of, of Christine Jorgensen 
an American serviceman who went and got a sex change operation in Denmark. Only place you could do it in those times, you know. And I was, wow, I can do that. I never thought of that. <laughs> I never told anybody, you know, but it was there. And, you know, living with my demons actually was very difficult. You know, I bought women's clothes, I wore in secret, things like that. And, um, you know, but I lived a life outwardly as an ordinary, ordinary man. So it was, it was hard. Is there anyone you were able to confide in over those over those many years? Well, I, the first person I, I, I confided in uh, was a psychiatrist. I went to see my doctor, um, and I told her I was, she diagnosed me as depressed. And so I went to see a psychiatrist, and I opened up to him, and he was wonderful. You know, he kept me from the two psychiatrists I've seen one private and private, and then he unfortunately died. He had esophageal cancer and died and I missed him very much and the second one was psychiatry at the Clark Institute as it then was and um, he kept me from he kept me sane I once came very near committing suicide standing on the corner of University and Avenue and King Street there was a bus coming up very fast I said to myself do I step out in front of it and I didn't of course but it scared me and um so he kept me sane. Um, one of the things that people like me a bit saner, demons that diminish, is um, you go on estrogen, which just seems to have some kind of calming influence. And so I survived, and then uh, my wife died. I said, well, why not? You know, she died in May of 2005. In October of 2005, I went to see a surgeon in Montreal. I had the operation in September of 2006, and then changed my documents, you know, my passport, my driver's license, health card, and so on, to show me as female after that, and then changed my name um, in 2008. Again, the wonderful thing was the complete, you know, it's a nothing from the civil servants. You know, I wouldn't change my health card. I mean, nobody batted an eyelid, just, yeah, okay, sure. Same with same with passport, you know. <laughs> so, did did you face challenges though? I, I imagine you had, in some ways, and I don't want to diminish the the challenges and discrimination you potentially faced, but you had the benefit of being established in your field. You were an eminent scholar. You were the go to research scholar and expert in contracts at Erden Burles that lawyers depended upon for their own practices, and 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 so it it wasn't. Uh, 16-year-old, 18-year-old navigating their own lives and, and having no clout behind them in the same way. But I expect you still face serious challenges in spite of all that. Um, I'm not aware of any. You know, I understand entirely. I had it very easy. As you say, I was established. I wasn't looking for a job. I had a job. I felt secure in the job. You know, I've established my reputation and my career. And so I was very different, as you say, from the 16-year-old uh, facing... <clears throat> The need, you know, to not only to fit in and to get a job and a career and so on, but I'd all done all that. So in that sense, it was easy for me. And of course, I'm very conscious of the fact that in my early career, you know, I had the advantage of being a male, you know, because in my law school class was one woman. You know, right. I taught at U of T for about five years and we had a woman in the faculty. It's ridiculous. You know, so I'm very lucky. But that's what, then again, I, that's where I got the idea that, which I can emphasize it. it, it it requires courage, but I think it's easier if you expect acceptance. That people are basically decent. That I got nothing but kindness. 
I did hear from one person that a former student was upset, but I don't know who he was, who he was, you know. But everybody else has been wonderfully accepting, you know. I tell you a lovely story in the firm. You had a young woman as a second year student, second year summer student. She's now a partner. And uh, we had a, I had a meeting with her. I talked about something or I forgot what it was. And she asked me and said that, now, do you know John Swan? <laughs> she'd been at the firm, you know, for the first year summer student. And what impressed me there, I said, actually, I do know him. Yes, you know, he was me. But uh, was it the, nobody? Could, I know him very well. <laughs> yes. Nobody at the firm had, had kind of said, oh, by the way, you know, <clears throat> Angela used to be John. It was just accepted. You know, she yeah. had no reason to believe that I wasn't what I was. Um, I'd forgotten that you were John until there was a, a push to, and, and congratulations, by the way, on receiving uh, the appointment as an officer of the Order of Canada, because uh, there were an incredible number of academics and judges and, and lawyers who were standing behind your candidacy. And as part of that, you were recognized by Governor General Mary Simon for your longstanding contributions to the legal profession, particularly in the area of contract law, as a professor, lawyer, author, and mentor. I certainly knew you as a mentor initially as a summer student at Aaron Burles, but it was then that I also turned my mind to your trailblazing nature because having been a man and transitioning to a woman at the time you did, in the profession that you did, as early in the Canadian context as you did when, when you think of how few people were having that serious conversation in the, the late 2000s, that was a, a huge leadership moment, I, I think, in, in many respects, too. But I, but I had forgotten you were John. <laughs> but I mean, the thing about it, you know, and this is why I am so proud and grateful to be a Canadian, you know, is that it happened first with same-sex marriages. They weren't thought of until suddenly they were accepted. Exactly. And we had M&H coming out, and so M&H was decided to tragedy by, by my friend Gloria Epstein, you know, and and um, <clears throat> so but Canadians were wonderful in their acceptance, you know. You know, I, I'm sure there's some people who don't, and I'm sure there's some, you know, they, I worry about so-called social conservatives, but widespread acceptance struck me as absolutely wonderful. I'm so proud, of, so proud to be a Canadian. Well, your message of expecting acceptance. I read one article, I'm sure it's not the only experience of parents who have children that are grappling with who they are and, and who they truly are. And they've heard you speak about expecting acceptance and, and, and it's changed how they've described it in one case as with Swan's words as our North Star, our family's approach is to treat our child's transness like the non-issue it is. And I think that speaks volumes of, of that kind of leadership of just extending your own experience to others. That it does, because that's what I'd like to do. You know, you know, to encourage people to accept, to accept, you know, what, you know, you really can't change. And of course you can be uncertain at times and so on. And, but I mean, I think I've forgotten what the figures are now, but the ex people who regret transitioning is a tiny proportion. You know, there are some very, very few tiny proportion of those who get it and again I, I have nothing but admiration for the parents who struggle with it because of course you know you want to be sure that it's what it is and notion of rapid onset gender dysphoria you know <laughs> well I on that I had a constituent reach out to me and they have a, a kid going through a, a, the child is in grade eight is self-harming has identified themselves as trans 
and the father raised concerns with me about just that rapid onset gender dysphoria. And I didn't know the term particularly. And then I went and did reading and it's this idea of this sociological phenomenon. And then I reached out, I had the library parliament give me a list of experts. I reached out to one of the experts and they wrote back to me very quickly to say, they've just published a report in the journal of pediatrics, the first study to evaluate this hypothesized phenomenon. And they did not find any evidence to support it. It apparently comes from a single study of parents recruited primarily from gender critical websites. And, yes, and I know. that has then devolved into this, uh, you know, I think social media attack in some ways. I mean, I just, I just think of all the generations, I think probably principally men, because it's easier for a woman, you know, to look like, dress like a man, just for the, dress like a woman, men who live their lives, to be able to express themselves, you know, I just think it's such a tragedy. And we're still fighting with it. I mean, people who worry about, you know, conversion therapy and so on. I mean, it's just, just, then to charge these, charging these parents with child abuse when all they're doing is being loving and kind, it just horrifies me. Well, in the Canadian context, we have had a, a bit of an absurd opposition to people using the correct pronouns. But in the United States, it's much more sinister than that. And although I would say even that discussion around pronouns, people dismiss it in some ways, but it, it does challenge this idea of expecting acceptance in, in, a, in, a, in a problematic way. But in the U.S., you've just referenced allegations of child abuse against parents for accepting their kids for who they truly are. And it's shocking when you start to read just how many pieces of legislation you've got the Texas bill that thankfully has been suspended by a judge for now. You've got a piece of legislation in Idaho similarly suspended, but I was reading there are dozens of pieces of legislation, over 80, touching on going after parents, going after gender affirming care, and then going after trans kids in sports. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. And it just, you know, <clears throat> who, do, who do I threaten? Who is threatened by me? No. What is my living my life as I, as I want to, you know? Why should it upset them, you know? Again, you know, I'm not going to... Sports thing, I think, is difficult. And certainly I recognize that, you know, I, my life is a man. You know, my body is a man in a sense. I've got to treat myself, you know. <clears throat> I've never had a woman's reproductive organs and all that went with it, you know? So I back off from sports. I would never claim to be entitled to participate in sports as a woman in every respect. And leaving that aside, you know, what harm do I do? You know, why do people hate me? It's the same regional opposition, you know, you still see it, you know, it is same-sex marriage. You know, why do you care? You've got to marry some of the things, you know, if you don't want to, but if somebody does, I mean, look at it as a marriage-affirming step, you know. Yeah, and why, why can't we just be decent human beings to each other? Yeah, you know, that's why I say I'm so proud in this country that for the most part, we do do that. We treat each other kindly and decently. Do you worry at all about politics being so personal that when I think of my own advocacy around whether it's climate action or drug policy or animal issues, it doesn't impact me personally in a way that if you're on the front lines calling for a prohibition on conversion therapy or calling for gender, gender identity to be protected under the Canadian Human Rights Act, both of which the federal government has thankfully pursued and, and passed. But it, it politics is, is deeply personal. And if politics shifts in any way, 
to a more socially conservative bent, then that's personal too in a really in a really negative way. Oh, I, I, <clears throat> I worry about it, about that very much as movement in the states to reverse the decision in Obergefell, which legalized same-sex marriages in the states. You know, why do you care? Why are you offended by it? You know, it's a thing I know because I'm a lawyer. If you look at the Ontario Human Rights Code. The preamble is a really stirring statement of what it means to protect human rights. The British Equality Act <coughs> could read like a corporation statute. No stirring statements, no preamble, a bunch of you know, definitions and so on. And the Brits have always come at this you know, with kind of a bureaucratic approach. And so I would have had to get in Britain a thing called a Gender Recognition Certificate, GRC, so I could then you know, present myself as a woman and so on. But in this country... I just did it. Yeah. People accepted it. Civil servants, you know, they said, I had one woman in the passport office, you know, kept, I kept going to her first to, you know, change my sex, to change my name and so on. So she, she, she said, I'm, I'm your personal, <laughs> personal passport officer to look after all your changes, you know. So it is, you know, <clears throat> just such a different atmosphere, such a different, you know, and again, encouraged me to say, yes, you can expect acceptance because that's what's going to happen. The more you expect it, I mean, I think the easier it is to give it. And the more it's treated as the non-issue that it, it that it is. Yeah. And, yes, exactly. And this, I, the core idea of people being able to be who they mm -hmm. are and living their life who they truly are, that should be the most non-controversial statement <laughs> and, and principle yeah, in the world. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Now, it... Yeah. You know, you talk about some of the, we can talk about some of the challenges in the Canadian context, but over, over, overwhelmingly, it's possible to expect acceptance. The worries in the United States, and then you, you go for it's, it's easy to contrast ourselves with the US and media markets overlap and there's cultural overlap. And yet, in other parts of the world, in Pakistan, as an example, there are so called, I don't know, the, the language of honor killing is so disgusting when, when it's applied to, murder of transgender people but but you, you we, we see murders actual murders of people just for living their life for who they are oh i know oh i know i know i know you know it's like you know malala you know, used to think, you know try to kill her because you want to be educated exactly. you know i mean i put it in part simply the same issue not not just a Transsexual, but also women's rights, you know, honor killings, you know, occur when a woman wants to be independent, wants to make her own minds, who she'd like to live, spend her life with. I mean, it's an attitude which I can, I simply can't enter into it. I, I can't understand the mindset that would think that this is something that you should do. It just seems literally unbelievable. I know what happens, of course, but goodness gracious, it's, it's pretty awful. It's a good reminder of how lucky we are in some respects to be in Canada. Although I still worry at some in some parts, and, and it's akin to in the UK, we see the pushback against prohi prohibiting conversion therapy. In the Canadian context, we've seen our Conservative Party, they voted against including gender identity in the Canadian Human Rights Act as a protected ground, but on technical grounds is how most of them articulated their opposition but then you track back, and I, I don't know if he still holds this view, but as I was reading about the Canadian history around trans rights and trans advocacy, Pierre-Paul Lev back in 2008 was arguing that the federal government should withhold transfer payments to provinces that are using public funds to cover gender-affirming surgeries. Obviously, there was some conflict within that party, too, around banning conversion therapy, and it's soft, thankfully, but could be insidious if it's allowed to permeate. Of course. 
Of course. And it's just, you know, one of the things I hope that I can show, you know, is that if, if people see me, if, if people see what, you know, the life I've had and so on, and again, you know, the honors I've received, I mean, that, you know, this is, it is possible, you know, to live a life which, you know, is broadly kind of, Praise, you know, praiseworthy, you know, as living with my demons and then as coming out as a transsexual, coming out as a woman, coming out, changing my name and all that until, you know, I tell you, you know, one, I would say to anybody, you know, who, who is a transsexual, go for it, you know, it's, it's worth it. I mean, the joys at the end are stupendous. And I've got to I lie awake at night and I, I'm so, I pinch myself because I'm just, it's not what I've said on an earlier occasion, shout out Happiness is just deep contentment that I am what I wanted to be. That you are living the life that your six-year-old dreamed about. Yes, exactly. Yes, you know, that's a very nice idea. That I hope, I hope everyone's able to live with that deep sense of contentment. Because when you right now look at suicide rates, for example, among trans kids and and trans youth, it's it's higher than the average rate by a wide margin and, and far too high um, that it should be. And, and that sense of acceptance, we're, we're getting closer to it. I, I, I truly do think, but it's, we're, we're still too far away from it than we should be. My, one of my daughters lives in Northern Ireland. Um, she has two sons. And Northern Ireland isn't known for its progressive social policies. Um, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> so, and um, all kinds of other, in any case, my, Daughter asked me that I wouldn't tell my grandchildren, you know, what I'd done to myself. Um, I said, okay, that's what you want. I'm happy to do that because she wasn't sure that, you know, one of her sons announced in school what the reaction might be. Right. And after a while, it became impossible not to tell them, you know, because I was looking less and less like a man. <laughs> fewer and fewer male clothes. <laughs> and so I told him, and my, she told my grandson, he commented, was, can you do that? And she said, yes. He said, that's okay. Never yeah. mentioned again. Yeah, exactly. I love. I love grandma too. <laughs> yes, you know, and my, you know, my family's fantastic. You know, my 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 local grandchildren here who see quite often. You know, they know me that I'm their mother's father, but I'm grand. You know, and yeah. dresses woman. You know, they know all the problems. You know, and you know, my daughters are wonderful. You know, managing the pronouns and my name and so on. So it's been wonderful. But I mean, it, everything kind of follows. Kind of easily and automatically, if you just make a fuss about it, this is just you know, this is who Grant is. And I hope that the more—I mean, I know this to be the case when we look at, as you've referenced a couple of times, same-sex marriage and just the acceptance of increasing acceptance around the world, but acceptance certainly in Canada of homosexuality in our society. Although you still see in the U.S. even this conversation around the depiction of same-sex couples and parents and, and they, they really go down a really problematic conversation. Again, just challenging this underlying core principle of the people should be free to be who they are, but acceptance is easier when we see representation. And so I think your life lived in many respects is only going to further the conversation and to make sure it happens much faster, make sure acceptance of People who are who are growing up and just and just learning who they are that that acceptance gets easier the more people like you are living their lives publicly as who, well, they, who they really are. I hope so. <clears throat> I've been very lucky. I said one of the 
various people. I was a very good friend of mine. Uh, I've known her now for 30 years. You know, I opened up to her and her acceptance was extraordinary, you know, and she allowed me to talk about it, which is important because not talking about it is actually quite difficult, you know, and her support was fantastic. And the same with my firm. It's been a, a, a wonderfully supportive. So. And to my constituents, and in most recently the one I mentioned, who's struggling, I would say, with his own child's dysphoria at the moment or, or their own transition and under and grappling with who they are and, and the parents' challenge with with that discussion and, and conversation. How how can I best communicate to a parent like that? Well I would say, first of all, <clears throat> if the child really is uh, transsexual, as I was, it's not something you can change. It's not something can be talked out of. It is this deep, deep longing to be what you are not. Part of the problem, this is just simply the biology, you know, that I was appalled when puberty happened. You know, my voice deepened and so on, had to start shaving. You know, couldn't say hated shaving, you know, until I finally I had electrolysis and expensive and painful, but did it. And so you're faced with puberty. And so there's kind of a, a deadline because obviously if you, if you can prevent puberty, then the transition is much easier because you haven't become a masculinized body, feminized body in the other way around. And so you've got to undo that. And so that's part of the problem is this kind of urgency about it. And of course the urgency occurs at exactly the time, you know, when you, know, you have to worry about a young person's ability, you know, are you really serious about this? I said, you have to accept the fact that they probably are because they're like me, then there's no doubt about it. Um, and that's why you had that Tavistock case in the in the UK, which said that a child of 16 couldn't consent to puberty blockers, but had to get the court's permission, thankfully overturned by the Court of Appeal. But, you know, you get into the situation where you have this deadline looming. A caring parent would like the child not to face the consequences of the deadline. And so you're squeezed. On the one hand, you have a person who's you know, you worry about, you know, have rules about who can sign contracts, for example, you know, infant minors' contracts. And so, on. so it's a hugely difficult situation, but it isn't made any easier, you know, by either rules or, or um, uh, kind of prejudices, you know. Exactly that, by inserting prejudice into the discussion. And, and sports is a really good example because there are real challenges just in terms of the differences as between bodies, but the the previous Olympic rules, as an example, were very focused on testing for testosterone levels, and, and they but were. But then you get a case like Castor Semenya, a genuine grade A woman who can't compete because her testosterone level is too high, which is horrible, you know. Exactly, exactly. So the, exactly, so you get a nonsense situation where they've draft they've create these very technical rules in an exclusionary way. Now, thankfully, there are these new IOC set of guidelines and much work, I think, will still go into developing what they mean uh, with greater specificity. But in principle, they're moving away from that very technical approach. And I hope that that conversation internationally then in some way devolves to state level legislatures and they move away from this very pernicious and prejudiced legislation as well, because it's one thing to grapple with a hard problem and, and try to accommodate as reasonably as much as we reasonably can 
a, a really difficult problem, but it's it's a whole other thing to come to it from the perspective of we don't believe these people should live their lives as who they are, and we're going to find every which way we can to push back against them living their lives as they truly yeah. are. Yes, that, that, that's that's the awful thing. That's the awful concept. Quite overlaid. You are an interesting guest for me on, on this podcast. I previously had Dave Stratus on the podcast, and he's now a federal court of appeal judge, as you know, and he was a professor of mine at Queens. Well, he did the BCL program at Oxford. You've done the BCL program in Oxford, and I would not have gone and done further studies. I would not, I, I might not be doing what I'm doing now. I have no idea. But for the fact that you and David were both very encouraging, I would consider you both mentors in different ways. And you were really supportive of not only the work I was doing Aaron Burles in your case, but also pursuing additional studies and to support that sort of lifelong learning. And you, I always saw as a model, not, I, I hope others see you as a model because of how you've lived your life in the course of being who you truly are. But I, what I saw was, I, I didn't see the gender piece at all, frankly. I saw you as someone who was an academic, but also a practitioner and marrying those two worlds in the way that you've done and the way that David was able to do, I just thought was the best way to live a life as a lawyer. And so I always looked up to you in that regard. Oh, I love that. I mean, I love that. I love the two roles that I have. I mean, I, I think that I'm, you know, again, I'm both a better, better teacher and a better practitioner having lived the both, both worlds, you know, uh, because um, you see things differently and you're a different approach. And I think it illuminates me. You know, I'm my textbook, my casebook rather, and my teaching. And the only person who teaches contract, those who use my, 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 also use my, my book uh, as for a solicitor, not a barrister. Law school is always focused on what arguments. I focus on drafting agreements. This case comes out. It causes problems. How do we avoid them? You know, you see that judge goofed. That judge made a mistake. My job for my clients now is to avoid the harmful consequences that decision is going to cause. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. You know. But I, I, I like focusing on not argument and litigation, but on cooperation and making things work. You get a draft and agreement that people like. It's very satisfying you know, because people can get together. And the enterprise can, can be forwarded. And do you still have, I remember many, conversations and your concerns expressed about the balkanization of the law and do you still when you when you look at the state of law today do you do you share those same concerns i i take some credit for the fact that canadian law has accepted an obligation to perform contracts in good faith as a governing principle there's still some people who completely deny that i don't understand it i mean it's just how can you conceive of a market economy that isn't infused with good faith? Think about it. I mean, the costs involved in being unable to assume good faith, I mean, are huge. Not expecting that the law should elevate that to a standard is itself yes. problematic. Uh, and in some ways, it speaks to an optimism on both fronts. It's inter I, haven't, I haven't thought of that in, in advance of the conversation, but this idea of expecting good faith and expecting acceptance in both cases, you are one who lives your life demanding, I think, but also expecting that we live up to the best versions of ourselves. Yes. You know, I mean, there's not a day goes by, I think, in the firm, an email doesn't come around and someone's saying, do you know so-and-so? 
or such and such a firm, you know, because it matters. And you know, there are many, many lawyers around, you know, but worlds we live in are quite small worlds. And if you get a rep- reputation of being, for my favorite word, a scumbag, you know, <laughs> it's going to have repercussions, you know, because um, scumbags are expensive to deal with. <laughs> Well, I, I, in some ways, uh, I'm thankful to no longer live in that world for the time being, at least. I, you know, I might end up back there. I don't know, but I, I have to say, I very much value the experience that I had with at Aaron Burles, but also with you and, and with colleagues there. And it's been nice that moving away from that world to still have been able to stay in touch with you as a, oh, yeah. now that you oh, are yes. a constituent and it's, 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 uh, I'm, I'm forever thankful certainly for the support along the way. And I just think it's an incredible life lived in many respects to have done all that you've done. And I'm glad that you've received the appropriate recognition recently from the governor general. Thank, thank you for your help in that respect. Uh, Nate, I'm very grateful to it. you and my daughter, I think did a lot for me. So I'm very grateful. So. When you've got folks like, Bob Sharp that are going to bat for you. You don't need my help, Angela. Well, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but thanks for your time. Thanks for everything really. And, um, and I, I know we'll stay in touch. So, so thanks for joining me. Yes. I'd like that. I'd like that. Okay. Take care. All the best, Nate. Thanks for joining me, as always. If you haven't yet, please leave a review on your platform of choice. It's appreciated. We're aiming to make this more of a weekly podcast, too, so if there are topics you want to hear about or guests you want to hear from, reach out to me with your ideas at info at and otherwise, until next time.